0: Good night. Welcome to the Catherine Zox Show. This informative and entertaining and show will start your mornings off the on the right foot. Here's your street. host, Catherine Zox, Good your night. social worker with the microphone.
1: The out in the hall. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to the Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is New York Times best-selling author Stephen R. Gundry, M.D., author of the Plant Paradox Cookbook: A Hundred Delicious Recipes to Help You Lose Weight, Heal Your Gut and live lectin-free. Former professor and chairman of cardiothoracic surgery at Loma Linda University, Stephen Gundry, MD, in The Plant Paradox, that's his first book, changes his focus to curing modern diseases via dietary changes, revealing the hidden toxins lurking in seemingly healthy foods like tomatoes, zucchini, Quinoa and brown rice, improving the health of hundreds of thousands and changing the conversation around gut health, inflammation, weight loss, and more. In the Plant Paradox Cookbook, he features a hundred recipes to maintain a revolutionary lifetime way of new eating. Dr. Gundry, whose work is featured in the New York Times, Huff Post, and the Atlantic, is director of the International Heart and Lung Institute and founder and director of the Center for Restorative Medicine. Welcome to the show, Dr. Gundry. Nice to have you here
2: me.
1: All right, let's start out perhaps a little bit with the first book because I'm not sure that everybody knows what the plant paradox is and what it means. So let's get a definition of that and then we can get into some of the recipes that you have in your new book, The 100 Recipes. So the plant paradox, what is it? What are we talking about?
2: Yeah, well, I think thanks to Kelly Clarkson a few weeks ago, most people in America have heard of the plant paradox. Um, it's a uh, the plant paradox is basically there are certain plants that uh, we're not supposed to be eating because plants actually have a life and they want to survive and they want their babies to survive. So they actually have uh, proteins that they make called lectins that are designed to make an animal that eat them uh, think twice about eating them by making them sick, giving them joint pain making them depressed giving them brain fog and as i uh, show in the plant paradox they're actually the cause of our modern epidemic of autoimmune diseases
1: lectins okay lectins are you saying in your book, then, that if they're a cause of all these autoimmune diseases and many different kinds of diseases, that we shouldn't be eating them at all? Because, you know, most of us think of, like, fruits and vegetables. That's really the good stuff, what we should be eating. And you're saying that it, it, lectins aren't but,
2: good for us? Yeah, there's there's actually a lot of good uh, plants that um, don't dislike us. But many of the plants that we think are actually good for us are actually designed to make us ill. All right, let's use an example. Most people have heard of gluten, well, gluten happens to be a lectin, and it's actually a fairly minor lectin, but people who have gluten intolerance or celiac disease, that's just the tip of the iceberg in terms of lectin problems. And what I and others have found is that people who try a gluten-free diet may actually get better because they've removed one lectin. Most of the foods that make up a gluten-free diet, including corn and brown rice and quinoa, are actually full of other significant lectins. And what I've found and others have found is that we remove those particular lectin-containing foods as well that people finally heal their gut and their autoimmune disease goes away. In fact, uh, three months ago I gave a paper at the American Heart Association Epidemiology and Lifestyle Medicine Conference taking 102 patients with biomarker-proven autoimmune disease, things like rheumatoid arthritis, things like lupus, things like Crohn's, things like MS, and in six months, 95 out of 102 patients were completely free of their autoimmune disease and off of all medications. That's a 94%, whatever you want to call it, cure or remission rate by following this program.
1: So you're saying you Pretty presented this. Uh, uh, that sounds spectacular, and you're presenting the, this, this research or this information to your colleagues. What was their reaction? I mean, I know there's been a lot
2: of, yeah. No, the reaction is. I was going to say, because there has been
1: controversy, yeah.
2: Well, the reaction is we did not realize that autoimmune diseases were curable. And when you see the data um, presented, again, before a national conference, uh, people, you know, begin to believe. And it's just like Kelly Clarkson. Kelly Clarkson had Hashimoto's thyroiditis. And she followed my program, and she no longer has Hashimoto's thyroiditis. It's gone, and she lost thirty-seven pounds uh, without exercising. So that's why it caught everyone's attention.
1: What about your ar- arteries? Because uh, if you have, if your arteries are inflamed, and I guess what you're saying is this—you uh, know—lectin-free. Uh, will help us so that our arteries aren't inflamed, then we will be healthy. But inflammation, I guess, is one of those uh, you call a biomarker or a marker for all kinds of diseases, including heart disease. So um, can you kind of expound on that about inflammation in our arteries and how this helps prevent inflammation?
2: Well, yeah, all inflammation. I've been doing this now for 17 years after I observed a patient who used this program to clean out his coronary arteries. And he's, he's called Big Ed in all my books. And I was so amazed that he did this, I decided to find out, well, what were the underlying reasons that this happened? And inflammation inside the arteries is actually caused by a leaky gut. And if you had asked me if leaky gut existed, 15 years ago, I would have laughed you out of the room and said it's pseudoscience, but in fact, with new blood tests, we can easily determine whether someone has a leaky gut or not, and all the research points to the fact that lectins cause their problem by promoting leaky gut, and this has been proven by Dr. Fasano from Johns Hopkins University who identified that that lectins attach to the wall of our gut and then actually simplistically pry the wall of our gut cells apart. And then lectins and little pieces of bacteria that live in our gut called LPSs leak through the wall of our gut. And inflammation is actually caused by our immune system attacking these foreign particles. And these foreign particles get into our bloodstream. And as I show in the plant paradox, other researchers have shown that these particles bind to the wall of our blood vessels and then our immune system attacks them. In fact, last month at the American Heart Association vascular biology meeting, I showed that Lectins are actually a cause of an autoimmune attack against the wall of our blood vessels. And when we remove those lectins, the autoimmune attack on our blood vessels subsides, which is actually how Big Ed and so many of my patients have reversed their coronary artery disease. Dr. Gundry, I have...
1: You know, you're talking to, as I said, you're talking to the American Heart Association, to your colleagues. One of the things that I find with physicians and even cardiologists, they don't talk too much about any kind of a diet. Uh, And I'll give myself as an example because I'm thin um, and I'm little and I'm, uh, you know, a little more than middle age, maybe, but because of that, and because I exercise, <laughs> my doctor never asks me what do I actually eat because I'm the right weight. My BMI is 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 what it should be, but in terms of, and he isn't the only one, um, they never ask me what I eat, um, and I think that's there's a certain consistency to that. I, I don't think that that's unique.
2: No, that's very true, uh, and in fact. Really, most of us in medical school maybe get an hour, at most, education on nutrition, and the nutrition is merely, okay, uh, you know, there are three classifications of foods, there are proteins, there are carbohydrates, and there are fats, and class dismissed. And most of us are never trained in the fact that food carries information, and food contains particles of information. And again, one of the things that we're finding more and more is that uh, proteins are not just proteins, carbohydrates are not just proteins, and carbohydrates, and fats aren't just fats. And all of these various constituencies of our diet carry information. And it's true even in the cancer patients that I treat um, so many times, um, We use in chapter 10 what what is called the ketogenic program in the plant paradox. And well-meaning cancer physicians don't know, for instance, that fructose, the sugar in fruit, uh, is the preferred fuel of cancer cells. And they tell them to eat lots of fruits and vegetables. And quite frankly, most of the vegetables that people think about, are actually not vegetables at all. They are fruits, things like tomatoes, squashes, zucchinis, uh, eggplant, peppers. These are actually all fruits. Anything with a seed in it is a fruit. So it's amazing what happens when we actually give people advice to eat foods that don't feed their cancer cells. And uh, the results have really been staggering, actually just Just this week, uh, I have a patient with known prostate cancer whose prostate uh, PSA's, his prostate specific antigens, are falling and falling on this program, and he hasn't had surgery, and his tumor is shrinking. And you know, he's a sixty-year-old man who his tumors are shrinking, and we have. A number of men, just as an example, with prostate cancer, whose tumors shrink uh, when they follow this program.
1: And so you're saying but oncologists aren't necessarily aware of this? You know, I'm talking about getting the word you out. Know, if the professionals don't have, if the word out isn't out to them and they're not telling their patients, it's really hard to get patients to follow this kind of a diet.
2: Well, that's true. You know, I'm always, uh, one of the talks I give to physicians, uh, I start with a quote from Upton Sinclair, who many people may remember, wrote The Jungle a 100 years ago at the turn of the last century. He was one of the original muckrakers, and Upton Sinclair has a famous quote that it's difficult to get a man to understand something if his salary depends on him not understanding it. And I'll use a personal example. I'm a heart surgeon and it would be really stupid for me as a heart surgeon to teach people to eat foods that would keep them from having me operate on them because my income depends on me operating on them and in fact that's what I did 17 years ago i realized that i should teach people how to eat to avoid me and you know, my wife's never forgiven me um, because he, even an accident. She said, "You
1: better start she, writing some books or doing something because if you're not going to yeah. be a heart surgeon anymore." <laughs> That's right. Yeah, That's
2: right. we're we're starving to death. We've, we've yeah. gone through our life savings, which is true. <laughs> um, and so, I, I think I think his his wisdom is actually true. I mean, for a oncologist to understand that perhaps there's at least an adjunct. Don't get me wrong. I think chemotherapy at certain times is incredibly useful, but it should be complemented with, you know, dietary interventions as well. And then it's a one-two punch. Do you think
1: if, also, if people have been eating this way before they get sick, and then, yes, it's not going to mean that you're never going to get sick, that you're prepared to treat your disease, whether it's cancer or heart disease, uh, by maybe restricting your diet more. But you'll be able to better able to, to do that if you've been following these this kind of a diet all along.
2: Well, that's true, and we, we have a number of our patients who do get care, chemotherapy for um, their, their cancers and who go on this program, and again, it's anecdote, but they uh, tolerate their chemotherapy so much better because, uh, not to get too technical, but chemotherapy wipes out the lining of your gut. And if you are eating foods and have bacteria in your gut that are actually friendly to the wall of your gut, your gut heals itself rather than being this giant raw surface. And they they don't get the nausea associated with chemotherapy. They don't get the debilitation. So we've seen some really interesting things, including... Uh, going to be an article coming out pretty soon from a major writer in a national magazine about his experience with chemotherapy in this program so but i won't mention names yet
1: okay well, let's go back to the beginning then let's talk about uh, toddlers for instance i mean do you recommend this diet to them like when babies first start eating food six months nine months a year whenever it happens to be would you start out right on the on the uh, on your diet
2: Yes. Uh, I have two grandchildren, one one-year-old and one three-year-old, who follow this program thanks to my daughter and her husband. And my daughter, uh, has, I have two daughters, one of whom has followed my program for well over 15 years. The other daughter who poo-pooed it, and then uh, after her second pregnancy, I uh, had about 50 pounds to lose, and finally she you know, gave in. And she's down uh, 40 pounds in the last seven months, and both her husband and her are down 40 pounds. And so they've converted over, and they're feeding my two grandchildren. In fact, I post on Instagram uh, all the time. My granddaughter was making uh, Plant Paradox pancakes with cassava flour and coconut flour just this weekend that I posted. So... The earlier you get kids to eat this way, the better. We're we're poisoning our children, as all of us know. And the sooner you get them to take foods out of their diet that are poisoning them, the better off we're going to be. I mean, just think about it. When, when I was in medical school, the children's cancer ward of our hospital was about three beds because childhood cancer was so rare that that's all you needed. Now we have entire hospitals and wings of hospitals devoted to cancer in children. And we have actually promoted cancerous changes in our kids with our current diet. And this is completely preventable.
1: Well, and that's, I think that's a piece of, I call it the toxic soup. I'm not the only one who calls it that, but the air we breathe and the water we drink. And then, as you say, the diet that we're introducing to our kids, which now let's talk, we've been talking about the plant paradox, but the cookbook. And you sort of briefly mentioned that with your own grandchildren. So what kinds of foods are we talking about? I mean, what kinds of recipes, I should say, in the plant paradox cookbook? do we need to start introducing to our children. And I hope they're simple. I mean, I have the book right here, but for oh, yeah. listeners, well, yeah.
2: That's actually the whole idea. I you know, I grew up in the Midwest and the South and when when the plant paradox became so popular, people you know, began to realize that okay, you know, I'm doing so much better now. You know, what what can I eat? Show me something that makes, you know, that I understand. So when I wrote the Plant Paradox Cookbook, uh, which has been on the New York Times bestseller list since it's been out, uh, what I wanted to do is give people food they recognize, for instance, like pancakes, like uh, chocolate chip mint cookies that my grandkids uh, make and eat, uh, like waffles. And so these are actually things we recognize but are made out of great ingredients that actually improve our health rather than destroy our health. And that's the whole purpose. So uh, I wanted people to be able to, you know, everybody's got two jobs or three jobs, and kids have got to get to 27 after-school after activities. And what I want to do is allow people to make something quite quickly that you can feed your family and improve their health rather than stopping off at a fast-food restaurant and picking up dinner on the way home. And one of the things that we use, which has just revolutionized, you know, cooking, is the modern pressure cooker, and uh, the instant pot uh, allows you to actually destroy lectins in, I think for instance, like beans, like in tomatoes, and so you can have a pot of chili very quickly in an Instapot, and we've got a great recipe in the book, for instance. So you don't have to give up the food you love. On the cover of the book is a pizza, and it's made out of cauliflower crust, and it's absolutely fabulous. Uh, One of our restaurant chefs in Palm Springs came up with the recipe, which is a huge hit in their restaurant. And she was nice enough to uh, give us the recipe and make it possible for someone at home to do exactly what she does in a gourmet restaurant.
1: You also have a great food photographer, I must say, because all of these recipes do look really inviting, including Jonathan Waxman's kale salad. Yeah, Uh, because kale was never that appealing to me. But the the photograph that you have of this kale salad and also the recipe make it, enticing so uh, and all of these it's one of my
2: favorite recipes and in fact it's interesting Jonathan Waxman I just had lunch with him in New York City on Friday uh, at his uh, two restaurants and he was he's a James Beard award-winning chef as are several of the recipes in the book from James Beard award-winning chefs and Jonathan actually transformed his health by following this program and he was kind enough to give uh, me his recipe, which is really one of his most popular recipes in both of his restaurants. And uh, this is the best salad you'll ever have. It's easy to do. My wife and I make it all the time at home. We serve it to our guests, and they're shocked with how good kale (laughs) as a salad.
1: Who does, you said your wife and you do the cooking, Um, who, is that always a joint effort who does it most you or uh
2: i'm i'm the cook my wife is the uh, sous chef how's that yeah okay uh, my mother trained my yeah my mother trained me to cook i uh, began learning from her when i was 3 years old i cooked by her side uh, all of our lives and she uh, was a phenomenal cook and so i've been cooking from day one i do You know, I did all the recipes in all my previous books. So this is the first book where we've actually asked for recipes from my patients. We actually had a competition at Gundry, MD, uh, for recipes. So we had a lot of fun with this book.
1: When was your uh aha experience? Because I'm going back to, like, you were a a surgeon. I mean, you're seeing sort of people at the end of the game, after they've ruined their arteries and they have sick or they've had heart attacks or whatever, and then you change to, you know, sort of wanting to start at the beginning. Was there something personal or something that happened to you? Or did you get sick? Or just where did it come from? This.
2: Well, again, I, I met big at a 48-year-old man who cleaned out his coronary arteries with this uh, program and taking a bunch of supplements at a health food store when I was chairman of heart surgery at Loma Linda. And at that time, uh, I thought I was doing everything right. I was running 30 miles a week. I was going to the gym one hour a day. I was eating a healthy, low-fat diet at Loma Linda, which is a vegetarian Adventist institution. And I was 70 pounds overweight. And I had such bad arthritis in my knees that I wore braces to run with. I had high blood pressure, I had high cholesterol, I had pre-diabetes. I actually did baby heart transplants with migraine headaches and I was told that this was normal because my father had the same problems and it was genetic. And so after I met Big Ed, I luckily, uh, as an undergraduate at Yale, had had a thesis that you could manipulate a great ape's diet and food supply and environment and create a human being. And my parents had my thesis, so I put myself on my thesis and started taking a bunch of supplements that I got from a health food store, and I lost 50 pounds my first year. I've lost subsequently another 20, so I've lost 70 pounds. I no longer have arthritis. I no longer have high blood pressure. I don't have prediabetes, and I don't have migraine headaches. So How I old were you doing this on the patients. I, I was 50 years old when I started. So that's and like prime uh, sort of mom. age,
1: yeah, for heart attacks, 50, right? I mean, that's when men yeah. have... Oh, yeah. yeah.
2: I, I had, you know, I had horrible, low, good cholesterol. I had horrible, high, bad cholesterol. And I was told it was genetic. And now I have phenomenal, good cholesterol. I have very low, bad cholesterol. And all I did was change what went through my
1: mouth. No medications?
2: That's all I did. Nothing to. No, I take people off of statin drugs. People throw away their high blood pressure medications. They throw away their diabetes medication. I've never met a type 2 diabetic that we can't get normal with a diet and supplements. Never met one.
1: Well, that's a good note. Well, that we have about a minute left, so that's a good note to end on. So, Dr. Gundry, tell us. Well, the name of the book is the Plant Paradox Cookbook. All kinds of great recipes. Website that we can go to to get more information about the books, your books, and also what you do and what you're doing currently. You mentioned Instagram.
0: Yeah. So yeah. So
2: well. So go to gundrymd.com and you can sign up for my daily newsletter. You can also, I have a YouTube channel where I post recipes and advice. Uh, it's GundryMD YouTube channel. Uh, you can find the book at Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com. Please go to your local bookstore. They'll have it because both books have been on the New York Times bestseller list for a very long time. So I guarantee you at Barnes and Noble, it's at the front of the store or on the bestseller list and it's uh, reduced price because of its bestseller status.
1: Right. Dr. Stephen Gundry, thanks so much for being on the show today.
2: Hey, I really I'm appreciate Ka- it. Thank you.
1: I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show.
2: internet's number one talk station number one talk station VoiceAmerica.com. are you or someone you know interested in attending college with both college tuition and college enrollment up 60 percent since 2002 there is a lot of competition and careful planning needs to be a part of the process tune in to getting in a college coach conversation and protecting your private, personal data from government intrusion. Tune in to Libertarians Working For You with Arvind Vora, Tuesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time, on Voice America Variety.
0: You're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. If you'd like to join our conversation this morning, call now. The toll-free number is 866-472-5788. That number again is 866-472-5788.
1: I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with the microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me this morning is HIV specialist, internist, Dr. Daniel Baxter, MD, and author of One Life at a Time, an American Doctor's Memoir of AIDS in Botswana. Daniel Baxter, M.D., clinical coordinator at the William F. Ryan Community Health Center in New York, shares past memoir or part memoir, part documentary, part travelogue, part reflection on his four decades in medicine, part chronicle of what he experienced in Botswana in One Life at a Time. He spent more than six years in Botswana providing direct patient care, teaching health care workers, and mentoring physicians under the aegis of the african comprehensive HIV-AIDS partnerships. That includes Bill Gates and uh, Harvard School of Public Health. He headed up teams of residents and medical students at the country's largest hospital, where under dire conditions, he cared for some of the sickest patients he'd ever seen. Welcome to the show, Dr. Baxter. Nice to have you on this morning.
0: Thank you, and thank you for your interest.
1: So, One Life at a Time, this is your memoir, And perhaps, I guess the first question is, why now, why write the memoir, and why necessarily are people in the United States concerned with AIDS in Africa, Um, as opposed to, and as I understand it, now the AIDS epidemic, which for a while was on the downswing, is now on the upswing here in the United States.
0: Well, um, I was um, uh, profoundly uh, transformed by my experiences in Botswana, and I wanted to share some of the insights that I had there uh, with uh, people in the United States. I think anyone who's interested in um, in history in public health, um, in uh, various ethical and philosophical issues uh'll find my book interesting, uh, and perhaps they can apply some of the lessons that I learned to their own lives
1: yeah, and I want to talk about those lessons I, w- I think one thing and you mentioned public health I'm not sure that people realize that public health is probably one of the most important areas of medicine there is it's what makes our country strong in a sense right I mean that's what because we are healthy because it ha- because of public health um, let's talk yeah. about yeah.
0: Yeah, I mean, we take a lot of things for granted. I mean, probably the biggest uh, advances in public health were a century ago when we were able to control uh, tuberculosis with basic uh, hygiene, uh, and recently, uh, with a variety of vaccinations, immunizations that can be very protective. So you're right. We, like all human beings, we take a lot of things for granted. But um, the HIV uh, pandemic, when it first unfolded in the late 70s and early 80s, was really a public health emergency. But people at the time, especially in the government, didn't think that it was an issue because they incorrectly assumed that HIV only uh, involved drug addicts and uh, the gay community. And then they quickly found out in the early to mid-80s that uh, HIV was an equal opportunity pathogen, if you will, and that it was, um, you know, infecting and affecting um, the entire spectrum of people in the United States. And moreover, in countries like Botswana and South Africa, the uh, threat of HIV and AIDS uh, could have uh, seriously destabilized these uh, democracies, and that, of course, is in the strategic interests of the United States to have um, democracies um, uh, in in Africa. So, yeah, public health we take it for granted, but it's oh so very important.
1: And at that time, you're talking about the mid 80s, is that when you decide, and that is when you had, you were, where were you working and what were you doing at the time as a physician? And then obviously your decision to go to, to Africa, to Botswana.
0: Okay, well, um, in the mid 80s, I, when I started to uh, read in the medical journals about this strange immune deficiency disorder, um, I was more interested in the ethical and philosophical issues with HIV. I mean, yes, the science of HIV is very intriguing. You know, a very tiny virus infects the most important immune cells in our body and eventually causes serious uh, cancers and infections. But for me, I just reacted with horror how HIV-infected people were being treated as lepers. I mean, I'm sure... Those of us that lived through that time remember when families were turning out HIV-infected uh, uh, relatives, um, churches and hospitals would discriminate against HIV-infected people. And this started the entire cycle of shame and guilt and stigma, uh, which even today does uh, involve HIV here in the United States, but when I went to Botswana, stigma and shame and guilt were rampant. So I was more interested in um, not so much the public health and medical issues, although you have to know medicine in order to treat HIV, but in terms of the unnecessary anguish and suffering that people, HIV-infected people, had because they happened to be infected with this virus.
1: Well, let's talk about the cultures because they are different, obviously. And the, and as I understand it in some, and I don't know if this is true in Botswana, but in some of the African countries, men go into you, married men. It, it's typical for them to go into cities and to have sex with prostitutes and then come back and infect their wives or partners. And that that's a cultural thing, which Ca- which helped to cause this you know this had nothing to do with gay men necessarily or IV drug users, but this had to do with a cultural uh, just a cultural way of behaving
0: yeah, I mean HIV is essentially as I said an equal opportunity pathogen it's not a gay disease, and most of the the HIV infected in the uh, people in the world are actually uh, heterosexuals, and in Africa. The Africans had a very enlightened, what I think is a very enlightened view of sex in general. There was not a lot of um, of prejudice and criticism if someone came down with a sexually transmitted disease or uh, people had children out of wedlock. But as you said, it's an important problem because uh, in the villages, men would have sex with uh, uh, young women uh, and That was a major route of spreading the disease, but also gender inequality, both in the United States and above all in in Africa, was a major driver of the disease. And by gender inequality, I mean a woman being able to say in the wee hours of the morning to her partner, not without a condom, and not worry about being beaten up or thrown out of the house or abandoned. Now, to be fair, in Botswana, uh, gender inequality is being addressed, but as an example, when I first uh, moved there in late 2002, a woman could not open a checking account, no matter how accomplished or professional she was, she could not open a checking account with the banks unless she had a letter of approval from her husband. Now, that, of course, has changed, but... Um, the entire issue of human rights, uh, gender equality, uh, is an important one in order to control HIV.
1: Well, laws have changed, but attitudes take a lot more time to change, and that's true here, even mm-hmm. in the United States, right? Right. Um, yes. So, yeah. So, and sometimes it takes generations, or at least one generation. I mean, it, it moves slowly. So. Yeah. You, Go yeah. ahead, I'm sorry. All right. So then you. No, I was going to. So you were there for a, a long period of time, and you, as you say, it wasn't just the medical, the the, the social, the cultural uh, attitudes towards um, HIV were one of the things that you were very interested in. Um, was there a major difference, though, in the in the tr- actual treatment? And I don't mean delivering the treatment, but let's say in in medications or the way in which patients were treated. Because you know, in my introduction. Um, I said that you know, you saw some of the very worst cases or dire cases of AIDS. Of course, AIDS in itself is dire no matter what. I, I, so I'm um, I guess the question is, was the treatments that you had available very different than, say, what is available here in the United States for treating AIDS? HIV. Yeah, initially,
0: initially back uh, when the Botswana treatment program started in 2002, the HIV medications uh, were somewhat old and dated, but they worked, I mean, hundreds of thousands of people have had their lives saved as a result. But interestingly, over the years, especially in Botswana and also in neighboring South Africa, uh, the treatments, the medications that they're giving are exactly like the medications that would be given here in the United States. So that inequality in terms of medications um, is, is decreasing. And um, uh, I would say that the care in terms of outpatient HIV care in countries like Botswana is comparable to what it here, is here in the United States. When I worked at the main referral hospital there, Princess Marina Hospital, there were major glaring deficiencies. And that often made it difficult to take care of very sick patients. Botswana is a resource limited country, but it does have money from its diamonds, and the government is very forward looking in terms of treating HIV. So, to answer your question, these differences in quality of care. Uh, are rapidly vanishing, especially in countries like Botswana and even in neighboring South Africa, which I might add has the largest treatment program in the world, eclipsing even what we have here in the United States.
1: So getting back to what you said in the beginning of the interview, it's very important to make sure that this continues because we want to preserve democracies in the rest of the world. Um, right. And that statistic, I absolutely, you know, that is a surprising statistic to me anyway, that, that in South Africa, that they have the best program. But what about the delivery service? Isn't it difficult unless you're in cities to deliver the treatment or the care, like you have people in villages and very far away and not access maybe to medical centers or clinics in the same way that we have access here in the United States?
0: Well, initially, yes, that was a problem. Uh, In the early years of the treatment program in Botswana, patients in remote outlying villages had to travel to the, oh, three or four major uh, treatment sites in the country. And many times they would leave many, many hours before dawn just to get to the clinic. But as the years uh, unfolded in Botswana, um, treatment was rolled out to even the most ru- uh, rural uh, clinics. And right now, someone living out in the uh, Kalahari Desert um, in western Botswana uh, can access the same treatments that he or she would get, say, in the larger cities. So that disparity has largely uh, disappeared
1: What made you decide, okay, it's time for me to come back? I said six years. I don't know if you were there six or eight years or you went back and forth. But now here you are back in New York City. Um, Mm -hmm. why did you decide time for me to come back? Time to me to take my area of expertise and bring it to, you know, bring it to New York.
0: Well, there were several reasons. I mean, first of all, I spent six and a half years there initially, and then I had a four-year hiatus here at the Ryan Center, and then I went back for two years to work uh, uh, at the medical school and head up teams of residents and medical students at the hospital. I mean, by the end of six years, the Batswana were doing it. I mean, the reason that Westerners like me were brought over by the Gates Foundation in the first Place was to train the Botswana to do it themselves. I might add that one of the things that I am proud of, and I try not to rest on my laurels, is that I basically headed up the um, three-day HIV 101 program where all of the healthcare workers came to hear me lecture about HIV treatment. And you know, I trained at least 3 to 4,000 uh, healthcare professionals. And so it was ultimately it was time for me to leave because the Botswana were and still are doing it themselves. Um I initially went back the second time uh because I was really very arrogant uh, in my feelings about American patients that were they were entitled and privileged and demanding, and that they had no idea what real suffering was and It was during my final two years in Botswana, sort of working in the belly of the beast, if you will, at uh, Princess Marina Hospital, that I finally had the epiphany, and it sounds trite, but the uh, the the realization that all of our suffering is the same. No one's suffering is any greater than anyone else's. And sure, I saw an incredible amount of suffering in Botswana, but the suffering I saw in Botswana is no greater and no less than the suffering of the frail patients that I see here at the Ryan Center. And so um, I was exorcised, if you will, of this uh, arrogance and hubris um, and that's what uh, has allowed me to come back here uh, and continue to work uh, uh, at the Ryan Center, basically being a frontline physician. So Botswana doesn't need me anymore, and um, that's the way it should be. Yeah,
1: And New York City does, and I'm thinking, what about, the, you know, you're talking about the arrogance, uh, which sometimes we associate with physicians here in the United States. And huh, about the don't me- get me started. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. I said sometimes, not all the time, but yes. Yeah. So you touched on a good topic. Your medical students are the people you train here. It would seem to me that experience that you had obviously brings a lot to, to your teaching them or mentoring them. What is the response? I mean, you're changing, you're helping changing the lives of obvi- of AIDS patients, HIV but also Mm -hmm. the students that you connect with, I would assume. You have a very different perspective than, say, somebody who hadn't had that experience in in Botswana.
0: Right. Well, as as I would tell the students in residence uh, in Botswana, and I tell the students here, your goal as a doctor should be to reach that state of grace where you feel that you're taking away more from your patients than you're able to give them. By that I mean you're able to better understand life and yourself. And one thing that doctors need to understand, and I realized this eventually, that the only person I can save is myself, if I'm lucky, and that all that I can do for my patients in Botswana or here in New York is to give them precious extra time for them to save themselves, if that's necessary. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's a process. And ultimately, a good doctor needs to divest him or, or herself of the arrogance and the condescension that all too often is part of my profession. So, and I think that that's another reason I wrote my book, is to share these insights with people, Um, ultimately, I dedicated it to my three grandnephews and grandniece that I'm very close to. And, you know, I hope that someday they can read it and, you know, feel and respond to the suffering of others as well.
1: And that will be or that is your legacy. Um,
0: Well, I hope. I I hope. I mean, it's it's um, uh, we shall see. I mean, when it comes to publishing a book. You never know who it might affect. And every once in a while I get, for lack of a better term, a fan letter from a reader. And that really makes the book worthwhile. If I can just possibly touch one person, be it a doctor or nurse or whatever, uh, then I think that it was worth the effort.
1: And many of those people that you affect will never write to you or never email you and you'll never know. So, I mean, there there are obviously when you write a book uh, who just it, it affects them and impacts them in their lives and their children's lives or whatever, but you're not going to know that. I mean, they're not going to. Yeah. Well, I you. would hope so. Yes. Yeah. What could you just address? Because we don't have that many minutes left. But this whole idea—I was talking to a friend of mine who is gay, and he was saying, you know, this new medication that you can take—that that, that he takes as a prevention, I guess, um, for HIV has caused, or uh, this may be a myth, that some of the younger men, the younger gay men, in this particular case, the millennials, um, are pretty kind of lax about uh, using condoms. And so the incidence, like I mentioned in the beginning, of uh, AIDS is, is um, rising rather than, um, you know, rather than at least maintaining where it's been for the past few years.
0: Right. Uh, This is called pre-exposure prophylaxis. Take a pill a day, and you will markedly decrease your chance of getting HIV. But the flip side of that is we're seeing a, a marked increase in syphilis, gonorrhea, chlamydia. And the real concern is gonorrhea is rapidly becoming resistant to our antibiotics. And we still have major disparities of care. And pre-exposure prophylaxis is widely used by, you know, white, fairly affluent um, uh, men who have sex with men, whereas minority patients that are also at risk for HIV either cannot afford it, cannot access it, aren't aware of it. And so HIV infection... Is increasing in certain populations and it's primarily minorities uh, here in the United States, and that disparity of care, I think, is a major issue. The other thing that will decrease HIV transmission is that if someone is HIV infected and on effective treatment and their HIV is suppressed to what we call undetectable levels, HIV cannot be transmitted sexually. so. Uh, both with pre-exposure prophylaxis and getting on treatment all of the infected patients, uh, we can make a major difference in um, HIV transmission.
1: So here again, there's that that uh, inequality, I guess, social inequality. You're talking about, um, mm-hmm. and I guess mm-hmm. and my friend does fit into that first category of, you know, well-educated, uh, uh, well-to-do um, gay man, gay male. And so he, mm-hmm. that's, but you're talking about a whole sort of the, the population that's not getting or doesn't have access or can't afford. Um, right, pre, right. Yeah.
0: I mean, when I, uh, in the um, early 1990s, when I moved to New York, the papers were trumpeting the so-called new face of AIDS, which was, you know, minorities, the poor, women, etc., and um, those same groups are still at risk for HIV here in the United States.
1: Now, you're, uh, is New York? I mean, you're in New York City. Are you in the heart of it, or is this? You know, I mean, you're at the uh, at the clinic, or where you are? Were you are the director? Right. Yeah.
0: Oh well, I was once chief medical officer and medical director of the Ryan Center and actually my book um, describes my 4 years that I was here in between my two stints in Botswana and um, it almost drove me crazy uh and I just find being a frontline physician is is basically more honest and uh the the community health center that I work at is in Manhattan, so sort of in the the middle of it all.
1: Well, we have a couple minutes left, so let's give more information. Um, obviously, your book, One Life at a Time, Dr. Daniel Baxter, um, an American doctor's memoir of AIDS in Botswana, and, and lots more. There's, there's so much in your book, and obviously, you've got to go out and get the book. We covered some of the topics. Uh, but, so, do we have a website we can go to uh, to get more information about the book or about you or about the work you're doing?
0: Okay. Uh, probably the best places would be Barnes & Noble or Amazon. My publisher, Sky Horse, Skyhorse, S-K-Y-H-O-R-S-E, Sky Skyhorse, also uh, has a website about me. And, um, yeah, I mean, uh, and the webs those uh, three places that I mentioned... Uh, really gives sort of a nice synopsis of the book. And I, I would hasten to add, my book is not doom and gloom. Uh, there's a lot of humor in it. Botswana is a country where, on my driver's license application in 2003, I was asked the question, Are you or have you ever been an imbecile? And so it's also very lighthearted.
1: What did you so, answer? Uh, <laughs> I want to know
0: your answer. I had to say, <laughs> I had to think hard about that, but I think I said no. And in okay. fairness to Botswana, uh, when I uh, reapplied back in uh, 2013, they did not have that question on the uh, application.
1: Well, that's good. Well, we have to say goodbye, and thanks so much for being on the show today. Lots of good information. Dr. Thank Rino you Baxter. so much I'm, for
0: your interest. I appreciate it.
1: I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show.
2: We hope you have enjoyed today's episode of The Catherine Zox Show. You can listen live every Thursday morning at 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America channel. Want to know more about Catherine? Visit her website at www.catherinezox.com. Be sure to join us next week for more interviews and great conversations with Catherine Zox. Thanks again for listening to the preceding.